Good morning to you. The Westminster Confession famously asks, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now that famous statement finds its biblical basis in a number of clear scriptures. The Old Testament calls us to glorify God in places like Psalm 86 and verse 9, which says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Isaiah 60 says, Your people shall all be righteous, and they shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorify. Now the New Testament shares this sentiment. We see it in Romans eleven thirty six. The Bible says, for from him and through him and to him are all things and to him be glory forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6 declares, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. But perhaps the most famous passage in all the Bible that calls us to glorifying God in our daily living is in our text today. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so today's sermon is called Glorious Living in a Self-Centered World. Glorious Living in a Self-Centered World. And so as you turn in the Word of the Lord to 1 Corinthians 10, and if you don't have a copy of Scripture, feel free to use one of ours. The Blue Pew Bible in front of you should have 1 Corinthians 10 on about page 1218 of that Blue Bible. As we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's first turn our hearts to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today in his text. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we invite you as Lord of this church. Holy God, we invite your Holy Spirit to take your holy word and to make us a holy people. Take us above the gutter that we would dwell of self-centered living in a self-centered world and lead us instead to the high mountain peak of glorious living, God-glorifying living in a broken world. We pray, Lord Jesus, that your word would speak to us like a lion's roar and also like a very small whisper. And in each facet of your speech, may we be enraptured and captured and may we walk worthily. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. Now the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 23, the Bible says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. 
But if someone says to you, well, well this has been offered in sacrifice, then, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they might be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now there's an old maxim, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, which brings us to our first point today. And you have an outline in front of you in your bulletin. Uh, point one is this. Glorious living seeks more than just what is lawful, but that which is helpful. I'll say that again. Glorious living seeks more than that which is just lawful, but that which is helpful. Now that's very clear in our passage, verse 23. All things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. Now we learned several weeks ago in our journey through 1 Corinthians that, that non-sins are not sin. And that is, believers have tremendous freedom in Christ. We can do whatever is not sin. However, just because I can doesn't always mean I should. And we saw that back in 1 Corinthians 6.12 very clearly. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I shall not be dominated by anything. And, and so as a Christian, the question regarding our participation in a situation is not merely can I do it, it's should I do it. For all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Therefore, I should seek out that which helps out, or I may wipe out and become down and out. You know, last Sunday, we had a number of new brothers who weren't always careful, and they wiped out, and they became down and out. But in Christ, they're able to be restored. Right? Some, some things might be lawful, but not everything is helpful. And that brings us to our second point today when we think about glorious living in a self-centered world. Glorious living understands that that which is helpful, so what's helpful? Well, that which is helpful, the Bible says, is that which is edificational. That which is edificational. And that's just a really fancy theological way of saying what our text says in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Well, okay, Paul, what's helpful? Well, well all things are lawful, Here's what's helpful. Not all things build up. Edificational is the things that build others up. That is, things that build up are that which are helpful. And that also would mean then that things that hold us back, well, those are the things that are unhelpful. See, there are two sides to this coin. You see, there are things that may not be sinful, but they also may not be helpful. In regards to those things, you and I need to be 
Well, we need to be careful. Is my participation in this situation building me up or tearing me down? Is there something in my life, while not necessarily sinful, this something seems to always distract me from Jesus. Something, while not necessarily sinful, it seems to always sort of derail me from my kingdom service. Something that maybe steals my time, or sucks my spiritual vitality, or or numbs me to eternal realities. Now those things may be entirely lawful, but my return on investment in them will tend to be awful, won't they? Uh, Hobbies, friends, are helpful. Hobbies can be enormously helpful to enable us to decompress and and relieve our stress. And God has graciously given us these pursuits so that they would bear relaxing fruit in stressed out saints. Hobbies can be an unmitigated good. However, I can become obsessed with my hobbies. So much so that I begin to shirk my God-given responsibilities. Have you ever seen something like that happen in a brother's life? Uh, My hobbies can hurt my industry, my family, my testimony. I can become so engrossed in my golf score or the number of followers I have on, on Instagram that I invest less for Jesus because I'm over investing in this lawful thing. Now we've just framed something as Uh, being helpful and edificational on the level of the personal. But our passage's message is that glorious living is not primarily self-focused, it is is God-focused. And verse 31 is clear on this. So so whether you eat or drink, that is in the most mundane, everyday, day-to-day thing that you do, whether you eat or drink, you're to do it all to what? To the glory of God. To the glory of God. And since glorious living is God-focused living, God-focused living will cause us to glorify the Savior by loving our neighbor. That sounds like something Jesus would say, isn't it? That glorifying living, God-glorifying living, is a living that causes us to love our neighbor. And indeed, that brings us to our third point in our passage today. Glorious living seeks the edification of our brothers, so we're building up other Christians, and the evangelization of those who are not yet our brothers. a very simple message in this passage. The problem isn't we don't understand it. The problem is we don't live it. You see, glorious living, not the Sunday school answer where we all agree, but what we do on Monday school when we don't have anybody watching us. Glorious living seeks the edification of our brothers and the evangelization of our neighbors who are not yet our brothers. We see this clearly in verses 32 and 33. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Now the Holy Spirit inspired this Holy Scripture like He did all the others. Amen? All scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, reproof, and correction, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit divides all of humanity into just three categories? This is how God sees the world. He sees lost folks of Jewish descent. He sees lost folks of non-Jewish descent. And Jewish and non-Jewish folks who are no longer lost. 
but are rather born again into the church of the living God. That's how he divides all of humanity in our passage today. Now sometimes some saints say, well, the church has replaced Israel. But it's odd. Romans 9-11 through seems to indicate God has a future plan for Israel. Now God's Word says that the blessings that the Gentiles are possessing were on some level, on at least one level, partially to make the original branch jealous of those newcomers, those Gentiles, us, who are receiving what the Jews have been promised. So that the wild branch's grace would make the original branch look back at Jesus, the the stump out of the root of Jesse, the cornerstone that they have rejected. Now, the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit divides the the panoply of humanity not by, by economics, the rich and the poor, not by politics, the liberal and the conservative, not by nationality, Roman, Greek, and Egyptian, but he divides humanity in relationship to their relationship to Jesus Christ. Give no offense to the Jews, or to the Gentiles, or to the church of God. Uh, to the Jews who've yet to understand that Messiah has come. To, to the Gentiles who've yet to understand who the Messiah even is. What the Messiah is. And to the church of God who found the Messiah and found new life through relationship with the true Messiah. Uh, Paul urges us to give no offense to any of those three groups. Give no offense to the Jews, or to the Greeks, or to the church of God. And we've spent several Sundays learning that giving no offense doesn't mean merely don't hurt their feelings. That's not what Corinthians is saying. And it doesn't mean that we have to cave into their personal preference and picadillos. That's not what the text is saying. Rather, giving no offense means not erecting a barrier to the Savior in our interactions with unbelievers, nor creating a barrier to the growth of new believers. It's not erecting barriers. Barriers to the Savior, barriers to growth in the new Christian. As to the Jew, let's look back for just a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 20. So if you go backwards, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 20. Paul says this in our previous message, when rights are left, how we sometimes leave things that we would otherwise have every right to do. We leave it behind so that others are not left out and they find Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.20, To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, the Jewish law, I became as one under the law. He kept kosher around the Jews. Though not myself being under the law, that is, as a Christian, I had freedom from that, but in order to have a connection to them so they wouldn't reject me, I lived that way because they were under the law and I wanted them to meet Jesus. Now, to the Greek, Paul was very different. That is, to the Gentile. He calls Jew and Greek, but he means basically Jew and Gentile. To the Gentile who's yet to meet the Savior, Paul also wants to pose no barrier to Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.21. To those outside of the law, those that don't have the Jewish law, to the Gentile, to the Greek, to the pagan, I became as one outside of the law. I didn't keep kosher. I didn't follow all those rules of religion. 
Now, not being outside of the law of God, meaning any rule that was a moral law of God, he didn't break, but the rules that were man, uh, religion oriented, uh, not moral, he would swerve. Being under the law of Christ. Why? That I might win those outside of the law. The Gentile, the Greek, the pagan. Paul's goal was always the, the evangelization of the lost. And yet to believers, his goal was always the edification of the saved, of bringing his baby brother so that it would be, he would be built up or she would be built up in Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, so moving from the lost, the lost Jew, and the lost Gentile to the saved. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, to the weak, that is the weaker brother, they're in Christ, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak, that is, that they might come with me in their growth in Christ. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Uh, to the lost person, the salvation is justification. To the saved person, it, the salvation is sanctification. They might grow in Christ. You with me? We don't think this way. We think, what can I get away with? What am I allowed to do? Where is my freedom? And Paul thought, where is my ministry? There's a big difference between glorious living in a self-centered world and self-centered living in a world that's supposed to be glorious. Friends, glorious living seeks the edification of our brothers and the evangelization of those who are not yet our brothers. And that brings us to point four, which is going to sort of pull these threads, these first three threads come together in point four today. Glorious living's primary quest is God's Glorification, that is the mission of the Christian, is God's glorification. Um, glorious living's primary quest is God's glorification. How? Through our brother's edification and our neighbor's evangelization. Not our personal gratification. You see, there's going to be an opportunity for you to put Christ first by putting yourself last. Because that's going to involve you putting your neighbor ahead of yourself. Doesn't that sound vaguely biblical? We could probably come up with some scriptures that say that, right? Yeah, there's a lot of scriptures that say that. The problem isn't we don't know it. The problem is we struggle to live it. Glorious living's primary quest is God's glorification through our brother's edification in our neighbor's evangelization. Friends, it is not our personal gratification we see this in our text today starting in verse 23 all things are lawful but not all things are helpful all things are lawful but not all things build up let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor we live in a me first world don't we yeah you're very quiet today we live in a me first world burger king tells us that we ought to have it our way right away that's me first isn't it a McDonald's says, you deserve a break today. Nike says, just do it. Whatever you want, just do it. Sprite says, obey your thirst. Snickers says, if you're hungry, eat a Snickers. Well, what about dinner? You can hear your mom saying, don't do that, right? But God's Word says, whether you eat or whether you drink, in whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. 
You know, when Jesus distilled 929 chapters of the Old Testament into just two commandments, he said this in Matthew 22 and verse 37. They asked him, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And this is the greatest and first in commandment. And, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, on these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. All the 929 chapters of the Old Testament can be distilled and you arrive at love God, love your neighbor. We love God's people by building them up, not by beating them up. We love God's people by building them up, not by beating them up. Which brings us to point five today. Glorious living is not found in fussy, fault-finding Pharisees, but in a gracious, grateful enjoyment, a joyous enjoyment of our Christian liberty. Glorious living is not found in our becoming fussy, fault-finding Pharisees, but in a grateful, joyous enjoyment of our God-given gospel liberties. This is clear in verses 25 through 27. Paul urges the saints in Corinth, a confused, mixed-up church in a very rotten part of the world, and Paul says, hey, you know what, just eat whatever's sold in the market without any question onto the ground of conscience. Meaning, don't say, was this ever served to a pagan? Was this ever done in sacrifice? You don't want to know the answer. Be ignorant in this case. Just buy it and eat it and give thanks to Jesus about it. Why? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, this gives you a chance to make a connection for Jesus to this person who needs to meet Jesus, go! Jesus was a friend to sinners, and so a very Jesus thing to do would be to be around some sinners. Go! Now remember, eating was a, was a very intimate act. It meant that, you know, I accept you, I embrace you, I'm, I'm going I'm to have a connection with you. So this was a, you know, pretty radical thing. And if you are, any of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, when you get there, make sure that you make a big stink about everything, that it's sufficiently Christian. Right? No, it's not what it says. It says, and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without any ra raising any question on the ground of, of conscience. You see, Paul saw nothing wrong with accepting a dinner invitation from an unbeliever. Just like Jesus, Paul was a friend to sinners so that sinners might come to the Savior. Now, there are some saints who are so exclusionary they will never be effective missionaries. And friends, that is a that is a mistake. That is the missing of our mission as a Christian. If we're going to, to make disciples, it starts with sharing the gospel. If you're never around lost people, and your main goal when you're around lost people is to tell them where they're not being sufficiently Christian, hello friend, they're not yet Christians. If you spend all your time disinfecting corpses, you have a very sweet-smelling corpse. But if you bring people to Jesus, he brings people to life, and he will begin changing that person. He did it with you, right? How it worked with us. When Paul accepted an invitation to an unbeliever's home, he ate what was set before him without raising an issue of conscience. 
Paul the missionary did not try to embarrass his well-meaning host by fussing over what was on offer on the table. That would have not only been exceedingly rude, but it would have been entirely counterproductive. It would prejudice his host against the gospel. Those Christians, they're, <laughs> they're, they're rude. Some saints major on the minors, and we end up alienating unbelievers. Instead of keeping the gospel primary and ingratiating ourselves to others. So lost folks get to know some Christians. And they get to know that, you know what, Christians are, are, are loving. And Christians are lovely. And we can do that because of the love that Christ has lavished upon us. But if they never meet Christians, particularly loving Christians, what would their opinion be of Christians? Have you ever flicked on the news and when they talk about Christians, you're like, well, who are those people? That wasn't what happened on Sunday. The Christian position is usually this <laughs> in how the media presents us. Because sometimes it's how we present ourselves. Sadly, for too many people in our world, the, the primary offense of Christianity is not Christ. It's their interaction with certain Christians. Amen? You ever try to witness to your friend that you've been praying to come to Christ and they go, boy, I met this Christian. <laughs> and it was like you set the gospel back a hundred years in this person's life. You see, Jesus is beautiful. The gospel is wonderful. Sadly, sometimes we aren't. Some Christians are not. Supposedly, and I don't know if this is true, but supposedly Gandhi said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Friends, they shall know us by our love, not by our nitpicking shoves. How do the people that know that you're a Christian know you as a Christian? By your love or by your nitpicking shoves? Paul understands his liberty, and so he partakes thankfully. And he urges you and I to do the same. Verse 25, just eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, just, just eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Glorious living is not a, a fussy, fault-finding Phariseeism. But it's a, a grateful enjoyment, a joyous enjoyment of our Christian liberties, especially when in the context of gospel opportunity. And it seems clear from our text that sadly in Corinth there were some, some haughty, naughty Corinthians Christians who were, who were acrimonious, who were cantankerous, who were censorious. That's a good SAT word, censorious. Learn that one, you'll pass the SAT. And, and, and these type of fussy, fault-finding, Pharisee-type Christians, you know what they did? They coldly castigated Paul for his gospel liberty when he was using it as a gospel opportunity. He wasn't using it so he could do what he wanted. He was doing it so someone else could meet Jesus. And they were mad about this. Look again at verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, Paul's saying, I do do this. Why am I denounced? Meaning Christians were denouncing him for doing this. Because of that for which I gave thanks. Friends, in ancient Corinth, there were certain saints 
fussy, fault-finding folks with Pharisee tendencies who were quick to throw the first stone, and they had the gall to throw that stone at no less than the Apostle Paul because he rejected their man-made restrictions in his efforts to reach people for Jesus Christ. Now, if that was true for the Apostle Paul, it's going to be true for me and you sometimes, amen? And so we may at times discouragingly encounter some fussy, fault-finding Pharisees when we use our liberty, thankfully and strategically, in gospel opportunity. And we're going to run into some saints who claim to know it all, and in order to show it all, they're going to sit in judgment over other brothers when we partake of our legitimate gospel liberties in gospel opportunities. So the question is, what do you do then? What do you do then? when the Pharisee squad has locked you in and you're the target. I'm going to encourage you just let those attacks roll off your back. And you stay focused on glorifying your Savior by building bridges to your neighbor. Because that's glorious living according to this passage, isn't it? According to Jesus, that's where we need to go today. You know, I can't really determine how another person is going to act, but I can determine how I react even to fussy fault-finding Pharisees. When the Pharisees hound me, I try to remember the message of Philemon 6 in all this. You know that little book no one reads? There's a little verse no one thinks about. It's a great verse. Philemon 6. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. There's something about believers who share their faith who seem to have a pretty full understanding of all they have in Christ. And there's something about fault-finding Pharisees that don't seem to be full of every good thing they have in Christ. So so when the Pharisees wag their fingers, I want to encourage you to roll up your sleeves and you just keep building those bridges to lost people along the way. When when the turkeys try to get us down, choose instead to soar like an eagle. Remember in Galatians 6.19, and let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so then as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone. But what about those occasions where we have liberty, but there's a a baby brother in Christ who who doesn't know of his liberty yet? We've talked about that extensively in other passages in Corinthians. Um, There are situations where our participation will lead to our baby brother's destruction. Because if they join us in our legitimate gospel liberty, they're going to violate their undiscipled conscience. And the conscience, until you know the Word of God, is all you've got as a child of God. And so the Bible says don't do that. And that brings us to point six in this. So, you, so as you do things strategically for the gospel, you have great liberty. Take things thankfully. Don't worry about the Pharisees. But, but as you come alongside your baby brother who might be tempted to come alongside, and yet he doesn't understand that the Bible's given him liberty, the Bible says this, point six. Glorious living responds to the weaker brother with greater grace. Is that how we respond to the weaker brother? When, when they don't know they have liberty, we go, ah, you idiot, you, don't you know? Come on, haven't you read that? Look at this verse, and we can do this. And yet, glorious living responds to the weaker brother with greater grace. Biblically speaking, the weaker brother, as we learned in previous sermons, is not someone with a strong opinion who bullies us to live under their convictions when the Scripture requires no such compulsion. That's not a weaker brother, that's a bully. Rather, the weaker brother is that dear saint who doesn't yet know we have the freedom to do this. 
And if he follows us when he believes we don't have the freedom to do this, he's learning to violate his conscience. He's learning to put a hot iron over his conscience. And that's going to lead him to a lot of trouble. And so glorious living responds to the weaker brother with greater grace. Responds to the weaker brother with greater grace. Look at verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, so, so you're at this meal and everything's fine, and then there's this new Christian there, well, I think that was offered to a demon. <laughs> I think that was, uh, that was, that was from the uh, temple. Uh, then don't eat it. You know what? I'm not hungry. I'll, I'll just have the bread. Thanks. I don't need the meat today. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm reverse ketoing, whatever that is. Being fat, I don't know, whatever that is. The all-carb diet. Then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you. Not the lost person, and not yourself, and not Jesus. That's not why you're not taking it. Because you respond to the weaker brother with greater grace. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. My conscience? No. I do not mean your conscience. Verse 29, very clear. Not your conscience, but his, the weaker brother's. Do you understand that the legalism of the, of the weaker brother doesn't make us legalistic? It should make us gracious. We don't have to live under their legalism, but we might have to curtail our freedom in a moment for an instant for their sake. The, 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 the legalism of the weaker brother shouldn't make me legalistic, it should make me gracious. And, and Christians committed to glorifying God seek our baby brother's edification, not their destruction. So for a moment, in that instance, we voluntarily restrict our liberty for the sake of the weaker brother's vulnerability. And God's Word doesn't ask us to give up our freedoms entirely, but only temporarily, only strategically, only when it's absolutely necessary. That brings us to point seven today. Point seven today. Glorious living in gracious deference to the weaker brother does not alter my biblical convictions, nor my ability to enjoy gospel freedoms in other situations. This is where Christians get a little confused. They think if there's a weaker brother somewhere on the planet, I should never enjoy that ever again, though I have freedom. That's not what the text is teaching. Glorious living in gracious deference to the weaker brother does not alter my biblical conviction, this is right and I have freedom. It doesn't alter my ability to enjoy that freedom in other situations where their destruction wouldn't be inevitable. And we see this in verses uh, 27 and onwards. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, hey, this has been offered in sacrifice. So that person, they see a problem. They're a baby believer. They're there at this mixed company meeting with unbelievers. Well, then just don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, for your baby brother, for the weaker brother, and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. Very clear. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Meaning, I have liberty all the time. I'm just pausing my liberty at that time. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Paul's temporary, voluntary, momentary suspension of his gospel freedom is not a permanent restriction on his gospel freedom. He says, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Permanently determined. If I partake, I am going to partake, just when it's not going to hurt somebody. Why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. And there's two basic principles here. You might want to write them down. They're pretty helpful. If you brought your own Bible, write them in your Bible. If you're using our Bible, why don't you write it in your bulletin? 
So there are two basic principles here that I think Christians get confused with. The first one is the weaker brother's conscience is respected. And the wiser brother's liberty is ultimately protected. Both are true. The weaker brother's conscience is respected. And number two, the wiser brother's liberty is ultimately protected. Notice the well-discipled Christian is never asked to alter his conviction in accord with the weaker brother's weaker conscience. But he does need to alter his behavior when around that weaker brother. Now some saints are going to say, well, wait a minute. This seems really inconsistent. Paul's a really inconsistent dude. Um, around the Jew, he behaves like a Jew. Around the Greek, he behaves like a Greek. Around the church, he behaves like... Uh, this is inconsistent. Paul kept kosher with the Jews to win the Jews. And then he went over there and he, he ate uh, a meal with food that was offered at the pagan temple when he ate with the pagans in their private homes. Not in the temple. He wouldn't go in the temple and eat, but he would go in your home and if the meat was offered, he would still eat the meat that was offered. He did that to win Gentiles. And then, if you were in that private home, and he was about to, you know, fork up and eat the meat, and you go, wait a minute, I think that meat was offered, oh, and you put the fork down. Doesn't Paul seem really inconsistent? Well, that's not good. Christians should be consistent. Hey, friends, that doesn't make Paul inconsistent. Paul was not inconsistent. He consistently applied the higher gospel principle. You know what it is? Be all things to all people that you might win some. If you're going to be all things to all people, there's going to be some inconsistency depending on which all people you're in front of. Paul consistently applied 1 Corinthians 13.5 that biblical love does not insist in its own way. Hmm. Paul consistently applied Philippians 2.4 Let each of you not only look out for your own interests, but the interest of the other. The Jew, the Greek, the church of God. Paul was consistent in the same way that a weather vane is consistent. Uh, that is, a weather vane points in all directions depending on which way the wind blows. But you know what's true of a weather vane? It always points the way the... And so when the wind of the Spirit is saying, help this Jew meet Jesus, then do that. And, and when, the weather, when the Spirit says, help this Gentile meet Jesus, then do that. And when the wind says, hey, uh, help your brother not fall over because he doesn't know his freedom, then do that. Do you see the consistency in what others would say is, is inconsistency? And so it is with the Apostle Paul's instruction to us. The wind of God's Spirit is always pointing people to Jesus, and we must not hinder it in our witness. We must be willing to bend our preference so the Gospel might not have interference in our witness. Equally, the wind of God's Spirit is always urging believers to respond in faith to what they know in the Word of God. And that's why if a baby brother or sister in Christ does not yet know of their freedom in Christ in a particular matter, Romans 14.23 is the situation you find yourself in. Romans 14.23 says, For the man who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. So this person who doesn't know that he has freedom only knows that his conscience tells him, wait a minute, didn't that come from the, from the pagan temple? And, and when I was a pagan, I used to eat at that temple to honor that God. And if I do that, then I'm honoring that God. So his conscience is saying, don't do that. And if he eats, it's not faith that's making him eat. I have freedom. It's sin that's making him eat. I don't want to look bad. You see where he's at versus where you're at? It's different. Please don't make Paul's instruction to be something it isn't. He's trying to please everyone and everything, but he never bends the gospel when he does it. When the purity of the gospel is at stake, 
Paul has no interest in making anybody happy but Jesus. In Galatians 1.6, Paul says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. Now listen to this, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So, so in that situation, you had people who said they were Christians saying that we have to keep the law that God said we didn't have to keep. And he said, wait a minute, you're, you're confusing the gospel of grace with a gospel of rule keeping, and that's no longer the gospel. So Paul would bend to bring people to Christ, and he would bend to keep new people from falling over in their walk with Christ, but he wouldn't bend just to appease people who had a different view of Christ. Paul was not inconsistent, and his ethics were not transient. Paul's guiding principle was never to please people. It was to please God. And depending on what situation he was in, the application of that one principle, glorious living pleases God, was different depending on who he was sitting in front of. And so God is best glorified when our brother is edified and our neighbor is evangelized. And that means that sometimes our rights... Well, they have to be left, don't they? That means, if you want to put this in sort of context in our passage, at the butcher's stall, you can eat it all. At the banquet hall, in the idol's temple, don't sample. In the private meal, don't interrogate, just eat. But if someone brings it up, then pass it up. You see the principle? Hmm. Paul sees his freedoms like a good driver sees his driver's license. A driver's license allows me to drive up to the speed limit. But I ought to go slower when children are present. Uh, brothers and sisters, are, uh, 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 as you go on the highway, uh, you, you have right-of-way. You're in the lane, but there's people trying to enter the motorway. They're not in the lane. You have a choice. I'm in my lane, and I have every right to stay in my lane. And I'm going to pretend that you're not there, so I'm certainly not going to look over. That's the New Jersey way. You don't exist. Right? Or I can say, wow, you're trying to get on. There's no one in the lane. If I were to inconvenience myself and move over to the left lane for a moment, you could enter the roadway and you could share the roadway with me. Right? Just as we must, we, we have a, a driver's license that says I can go up to the speed limit, but I go slower when children are present. Or, are we willing to forgo a ride or two for a night or two so some baby brother or sister can discover their liberty? Will we give them room to come in the lane? Will we let lost people come into the lane because we yield some of our rights so that they're not left? I wish more of us would live like this. And that brings us to our final point today, point eight in all this. Glorious living follows the example of Jesus. It knows that others are living exemplary in this and sets an example for others in this. So there's three pieces to this third point. Glorious living follows the example of Jesus. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. How did Jesus live? He lived in such a way where he was a friend to sinners, but he never bent the moral law of God. He always was attractive, and people followed him, and they wanted to know more, and yet he always held to the truth. Full of grace, full of truth. 
And then we also know, not only is there an example of Jesus, we go, well, Jesus did it, but you and I, we're going to mess it up. Well, maybe, but there are other brothers who are living exemplary, and if they can do it, I can do it. And so we ought to set an example in this. Listen again to chapter 11, verse 1. After he has this long discussion, I do not seek my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved, what does he say? He says, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me in this, as I am of Christ. It's a powerful verse. I think it's one of the most challenging verses in the Bible. Because Jesus always chose our edification over his gratification every time, didn't he? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross that we might not remain forever lost. Uh, Jesus always chose others over self. For greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friend. Jesus always chose liberty over legalism. He, he overturned the money changers' tables. He refused the, the Pharisees' extra-biblical ceremonial hand-washings. He rejected their call for korban when man nullified the word of God by their own tradition. Jesus chose condescension oh, so we wouldn't have condemnation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that we might be saved through Him. Oh, that we might be more like Jesus in this. I'm so thankful that there are some saints who are. Do you know some saints who are really good about this? That they, they always make room for others. They're always looking for ways to connect with lost people and invite them into the circle of Jesus. I'm thankful there are people like the Apostle Paul, or I might say, well, Jesus did it, but he was God, and we're in trouble. There were Pauls. And Paul's gotten all kinds of trouble because they were like Jesus. And some Christians didn't like it. Paul could say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Can we say that? Paul not only said it, he lived it. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one of the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Friends, glorious living follows the example of Jesus in this. Glorious living knows there are other brothers and sisters who are living examples in this. And glorious living says, you know what, in 2020, I'm going to set an example in this. Let's pray today to those ends. Amen? Lord Jesus, your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And while many of the principles in today's text we've heard elsewhere in Corinthians, we've heard through the statements of Jesus, we've heard in Sunday school, we really struggle to get an A on in Monday school. Would you help us, Lord Jesus, to think not more highly of ourselves than we ought, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, to, to live out the principle that we've talked about here, that, that, that Jesus first the greater good second and ourselves last. We always love that until it's our thing that needs to be last and then we want to be first. 
But in wanting to be first, we become last, and you tell us that the last will become first. So help us that our brothers might be edified in our interactions with us, and that our neighbors might be evangelized through our interactions among us. And most of all, we pray it all that Jesus might be glorified in us. We ask this in the name above every name. And the example par excellence, it can be done because you lived it and you did it, so help us to walk in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.